This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on joint cell arthritis. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Joint cell arthritis is a common form of vasculitis in people aged 50 years or older. The extracranial branches of the carotid artery are usually affected. It can cause serious complications, including irreversible blindness. So it is vital that we get the diagnosis and management of this condition right. To tell us how to do this, we have on the line Dr. Kenneth Warrington, Chair of the Division of Rheumatology at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science. And importantly, Ken is also author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Ken, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you to tell us about giant cell arthritis. What are the key points? Yes, thanks for having me. Giant cell arthritis is the most common form of vasculitis, of systemic vasculitis in adults and affects medium to large sized arteries. And as you mentioned, it preferentially affects the branches of the carotid artery supplying the head, but often there is also involvement of the aorta and its major branches. Giant cell arteritis preferentially affects the elderly, and the average age at onset is approximately 72, um, and again, predominantly affects those over the age of 50, somewhat more common in women compared to men. There is a genetic predisposition, but unfortunately, the exact cause of giant cell arteritis is not yet known. Okay, thank you. And how do you make the uh, how do you make the diagnosis? The diagnosis of giant cell arteritis may not be easy to make. Part of that is the symptoms may be different according to the territory of the vasculature that is involved. So for example, the most common clinical presentation relates to complications of the cranial arteries. So that produces symptoms such as headache, jaw claudication, where patients have pain when they're chewing. There may be sudden onset of vision loss or double vision or even transient vision loss. And those symptoms often clue us into the diagnosis. Now, there are different forms of clinical presentation. For example, patients who may present with constitutional symptoms, such as fever, weight loss, or loss of appetite. And those can be more difficult to diagnose. In addition, the first step in trying to understand whether a person might have giant cell arteritis, again, because some of the symptoms can be nonspecific to recognize, we, the first thing we do is to check markers of, of inflammation, those being the sedimentation rate and the C-reactive protein. The C-reactive protein being somewhat uh, better uh, than the sedimentation rate because it has higher sensitivity. However, both these tests lack specificity because they can be elevated in a number of conditions that may mimic giant cell arteritis, such as, for example, infections or other disorders uh, producing systemic inflammation. So additional tests are needed. Thank you. That, that's really helpful. Let's move on to the additional tests. What are the, the, the next uh, tests in line? Yes. 
So the gold standard diagnostic test is a biopsy of the superficial temporal artery at the side of the head where a surgeon can take a sample, and that can be examined microscopically to look for evidence of an inflammatory process in the wall of the artery. This test is somewhat invasive and is not widely available, and therefore there has been increasing use and interest depending on the center where the patient is being evaluated there has been a lot of interest in the use of ultrasound as this is non-invasive often can be performed at the bedside by the evaluating rheumatologist or in the u.s radiologist and uh, the ultrasound may show evidence of thickening inflammation of the uh, temporal artery which uh, may yield a diagnosis and may take the place or replace the uh, use of biopsy. So I would say ultrasound or biopsy has really become the mainstay diagnostic test for GCA. Okay, thank you. What would you say are the common pitfalls in making the diagnosis? Yes, that's a very important topic because one has to consider the clinical phenotype of the patient when determining which best diagnostic test. Thus far, I've commented about the patients who present with cranial symptoms, headache, jaw claudication, perhaps vision loss. And in those patients, the ideal diagnostic test would be to either image or biopsy the temporal artery, as we said, with ultrasound or biopsy. However, in patients who present with constitutional symptoms, or with symptoms of claudication of the upper extremities, in that clinical phenotype, then the yield of ultrasound or biopsy is going to be lower. Um, And in those patients, we often resort to imaging of the aorta and its main branches, either with uh, CT angiography or magnetic resonance angiography, MRA. In a small proportion of patients, the um, use of PET scan, which looks for inflammatory activity in the aorta and its major branches, can also be of diagnostic utility, but again is used in a small subset of patients. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to to management. What's the mainstay of, of management of this condition? The mainstay of treatment for giant cell arteritis since uh, the first patient was treated in the 1940s has been the use of glucocorticoids, uh, prednisone or prednisolone or equivalent. And it is very well known and well established that with glucocorticoids, patients' symptoms improve and the markers of systemic inflammation often normalize within a few weeks. So patients feel better, their laboratory studies look better, Uh, but of course, one of the difficulties with the management of giant cell arteritis is the chronicity of the condition and the long-term requirement for treatment. So the long-term use of glucocorticoids and then the subsequent adverse effects that are associated with that. Okay, thank you. And and what dose of prednisolone should patients start on and and how might you tail that dose and over what time period? Depending on the clinical presentation, so for instance, those patients who present with 
either transient or established vision loss. So when there is concern regarding a threat to the patient's vision, we will often start glucocorticoids intravenously, administering either half to one gram a day for daily for three days, and then we transition to oral glucocorticoids. In patients who do not present with uh, visual symptoms, then we generally start with a milligram per kilogram of prednisone or equivalent, and oftentimes a standard dose is somewhere between 40 to 60 milligrams daily. We generally maintain this high dose for about four weeks, and then we start to taper. Now, the duration of taper is variable. In general, most patients end up requiring glucocorticoids for one to two years or longer in a slowly tapering dose. The reason the treatment course becomes so protracted is because as the glucocorticoids are tapered, relapses are quite frequent, and that requires an increase in glucocorticoids. On the other hand, um, we do have a fairly novel biologic agent that is able to uh, assist as a glucocorticoid sparing agent. And with the use of uh, this biologic with tocilizumab, then the prednisone taper can often be accelerated and may be accomplished in a, in a shorter time span on the order of about six months or so. Okay, thank you. And just to clarify a couple of things, the intravenous um, uh, drug, would, I'm guessing, would be methylprednisolone. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Yeah, okay, good. And tell us more about the biological agent and how, how that might help uh, act as a steroid-sparing agent. Sure. So tocilizumab is an inhibitor of interleukin-6, um, a key inflammatory cytokine or messenger for the immune system. And it's long been known that interleukin-6 is elevated in patients with giant cell arteritis. Interleukin-6 is also present in the uh, temporal artery inflammatory process uh, in, the, in the vessel wall. And therefore, inhibiting interleukin-6 uh, has been of interest. Interleukin-6 also drives the uh, liver to produce the acute phase proteins, such as C-reactive protein. And it has been initially used in select cases and then reported in small case series, but definitive data regarding its utility as a glucocorticoid sparing agent came from two major clinical trials, one conducted in Switzerland by Villiger et al., and another, uh, an international collaborative study uh, called the JIACTA trial conducted by uh, Dr. Stone. And in these trials, it was noted that um, Patients were able to taper glucocorticoids more rapidly. For example, in the JIACTA trial, if patients received a one-year course of prednisone and prednisone alone, then less than 20% of patients were in sustained remission at the end of the year. In other words, the majority of patients had relapsed despite a one-year treatment course of glucocorticoids. On the other hand, if patients receive, received a shorter uh, duration of glucocorticoids with the addition of tocilizumab, then uh, approximately 50% or so of those patients were able to maintain remission at the end of the trial. That was a 52-week trial. So a substantial difference between patients who are treated with prednisone monotherapy compared to those receiving tocilizumab combination with uh, glucocorticoids. Now, the, the trial was very 
carefully done, double-blinded, randomized, and really kind of the gold standard for clinical trial design. So it was a robust trial with a large number of patients for a rare disease uh, of approximately 251 patients. So compelling data that this uh, medication is is useful as a glucocorticoid-sparing agent. Okay, thank you. And is it usually well-tolerated? Uh, I wonder, are there side effects associated with it? Absolutely. Whenever we're tinkering with the immune system, of course, we um, are concerned regarding the possibility of uh, the consequences of immunosuppression, that being an increased risk of infections. However, we also know that glucocorticoids have a substantial number of adverse effects, including the increased risk of infection, and this has been shown in epidemiology studies of, of giant cell arteritis. Tocilizumab is a biologic. It can be given either as a subcutaneous injection or as an intravenous uh, administration, and therefore there may be complications such as injection uh, or infusion-related reactions. It may cause an increase in the uh, lipid profile where cholesterol may become elevated. On occasion, it may cause a reduction in blood counts, and therefore we um, monitor patients' blood counts. And less commonly, it may cause elevation in liver function tests. So appropriate patient follow-up and monitoring is, of course, uh, essential. What is interesting is that in the uh, in a clinical trial, in the GIACTA trial, when one actually looked at the proportion of patients who had serious adverse events, it was actually slightly higher in patients receiving glucocorticoid monotherapy likely reflecting the fact that patients who got uh, glucocorticoids alone received about twice as much cumulative prednisone compared to patients receiving the combination with tocilizumab. And therefore, although tocilizumab does bring its its um, own set of, of adverse effects, it, it does mitigate against the adverse effects that uh, high doses of sustained uh, glucocorticoids uh, bring with them. Okay, thank you. And back to the patient who starts on 40 or 60 milligrams of prednisolone per day. Um, would you routinely start bone protective agents? And, and if so, what would you, what would you recommend? Yes, um, glucocorticoids, of course, are associated with a substantial risk for bone loss, often uh, even early in initiation of the of the treatment course, and therefore assessing bone health with bone densitometry, providing appropriate uh, calcium and vitamin D supplementation, but then also depending on the patient's uh, risk, we often initiate a. Um, bisphosphonate or other agent, um, depending on the individual patient scenario, but um, assessing bone health, again, ensuring appropriate calcium and vitamin D supplementation, and then consideration of a um, anti-resorptive agent, basically to protect against glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis is, is an essential part of patient management because um, studies have shown in the past that without appropriate management, glucocorticoids, of course, are associated with a substantial risk of osteoporosis and potential fracture risk. Okay, thank you. Are there pitfalls in management or have we dealt with most of them? Are there any other common pitfalls in, in management of giant cell arthritis? 
Yes, one of the more important ones is ensuring that patients are responding appropriately to therapy. We may not have spent uh, time talking about this, but in some patients, of course, we can confirm the diagnosis with ultrasound or biopsy and others with other forms of imaging. But there's also a group of patients who present with symptoms and findings that are consistent with giant cell arteritis. And the diagnosis is made based on the clinical presentation. And in a small proportion of patients, we're not able to confirm that with uh, biopsy or imaging. And therefore, when we make a clinical diagnosis of GCA, we want to make sure that the patients are responding appropriately to therapy. And if there is a lack of uh, expected response to therapy, then we may want to reconsider the diagnosis and ensure that that the diagnosis is is correct. Okay. And, and what else could it be um, if, if the patient isn't responding to therapy? Is it a, a paraneoplastic? Could it be a paraneoplastic condition or something like that? Excellent question. Yes, definitely a perineoplastic condition could be mimicking giant cell arteritis because, of course, a, um, a malignancy, for example, a hematologic malignancy can produce elevated inflammatory markers and can mimic the, uh, the symptoms of giant cell arteritis. Less commonly, uh, an infectious uh, condition may also uh, mimic giant cell arteritis and produce markedly elevated inflammatory markers, for example, conditions such as uh, infective endocarditis um, or other forms of uh, systemic infections. And therefore, lack of response to standard therapy should clue the physician to potentially reconsider the diagnosis. Okay, thank you. Um, Last question, what have we missed? What other common questions are you asked about joint cell arthritis by by doctors that we that we haven't covered if if anything yes one of the pitfalls also to mention is that um, in in many patients of course due to the urgency for treatment in the clinical practice when a patient presents with symptoms that are concerning for giant cell arthritis we and physicians in general would want to institute therapy sooner rather than later to prevent the potential for devastating consequences such as vision loss. Now, once glucocorticoids have been started, that can impact our diagnostic algorithm because, for example, the ultrasound findings of vasculitis that we mentioned earlier may start to dissipate within the, a, a week of uh, starting therapy. And so we want to while we want to emphasize prompt treatment, we also need to emphasize prompt um, evaluation or prompt diagnostic studies. Now, with temporal artery biopsy, there has been more of a myth that once the patient has started on glucocorticoids, the biopsy will be of low utility uh, because the patient is on glucocorticoids. However, studies, uh, including a recent one uh, performed here at Mayo Clinic, have shown that if a if a patient has inflammation in the temporal artery, that inflammation may persist for weeks and often months um, despite the use of glucocorticoids. And so therefore, a temporal artery biopsy is still of utility even in patients who have been on treatment for several weeks. Okay, thank you very much, Ken. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. 
If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and have a look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.